0: listeners this is Robert from Nostalgic and Cars let me tell you about my company Gulfstream Motorsports Inc 727 541 1741 i have over 35 years experience with classic vintage sport and racing cars i do appraisals consulting and pre purchase inspections before you buy your next rare classic the car you dreamed Give me a call at Gulfstream Motorsports, Inc., 727-541-1741. Also, due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I am very good with wrecks. So if your car has been in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call me at 727-541-1741
1: Quiet numbskulls, I'm broadcasting.
0: Hey listeners, welcome to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. You are tuned in to the greatest car show on earth. I'm your host, Robert. And we got a great show for you tonight. This is live, so uh, like I said, anything is happening, anything's possible. At any rate, um, we got a good show tonight. As usual, we'll be playing a couple of good old songs, some great music, and I've got a very, very, very fascinating guest for you guys. So uh, we're going to uh, get into that in a little bit. This guy's been a, uh, got to tell you a little bit about him. He is a world-famous race car driver, and a couple of things that were briefly written about him, okay, I won't mention his name just yet. But it is said that he has established one of the most outstanding records of speed and reliability in the annals of professional racing. That's, that's a very powerful statement right there. And then another one, his quiet manner, now these are quotes, mind you, okay? His quiet manner marks a talent for consistency and quickness that have made him one of the all-time greats in the sport of racing, motorsports racing. So those are great. So this is going to be a great guest. Lee, what do you got ready for us today on the uh, turntable?
1: Well, we've got uh, a
0: song called A Man and a Woman. I know everyone's going to recognize it as soon as they hear it. Okay, this is from a French film. I'll talk about that after the song or after the commercial break. So uh, everybody sit tight uh, and uh, let's, uh, let's go to the movies. Hey, mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars and you might get a free drink. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great pizza shop right here in downtown Clearwater. Bro's Pizzeria, voted number one in the city of Clearwater. They're located at 547 South Fort Harrison Avenue. They have great New York-style pizza, as well as delicious lasagna, spaghetti and meatballs, minicotti, linguine. And if you're in the neighborhood for lunch, they have great hot and cold sandwiches and appetizers. So call 727-441-6025 for takeout and deliveries, or stop by for a veal parmesan dinner and a nice glass of vino. That's Bro's Pizzeria. Check out their website and watch my friend Olty create a spectacular pizza before your very eyes. What would you like on your pizza? Call Bro's Pizzeria, 727-441-6025. That's 727-441-6025. And tell them Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars sent you. Okay, guys, we're back. Hey, let's go over a couple of updates here. Um, the big, big, big venue this weekend is the Legends of Motorsport, which is a huge vintage race. It's at Sebring this weekend. It starts tomorrow through Sunday. Okay, so everybody, make sure you get down to Sebring. Check out the vintage race down there. You're going to have some great legendary drivers down there. Bobby Rahal will be down there. He was on our show a while back. We interviewed him. Brian Redman will be down there. He is another world-famous race car driver. And uh, he's also the Grand Marshal and just a whole host of cool cars, Cobras, Shelby's, GT40's, Lola's, just a beautiful array of uh, cars. 135 cars are going to be down there uh, blasting around the uh, vintage, historic Sebring International Racetrack, Okay. Also, uh, let's see what else we got. Oh, yeah, if you got yeah, Drag Race, guys, uh, you know, it's Wednesday night. It's Test and Tune over at Sunshine Drag Strip. We got the Snowbird Nationals going on down at uh, Bradenton Motorsports. And also on Saturday nights, the Nights of Fire with the big uh, uh, jet powered uh, dragsters down there. Um, it's also uh, Wednesday night, so it's uh, open mic night at Naughty Nancy's. So be sure and check out Naughty Nancy's this evening. Bring your favorite uh, instrument and go over there and play. Give Naughty Nancy a call, 446 3717. Next week, the 9th to the 11th it's a PRI show in Orlando, Performance Racing Industries, big show. As a matter of fact, Bobby Hall again, will be the guest speaker at the uh, the breakfast meeting with uh, Dave Despain of Wind Tunnel. Okay, so that's another great uh, uh, event over there going on in Orlando. And then also Sunday on the 11th at St. Armand Circle in Sarasota is Porsches in the park. And there'll be a whole array of vintage Porsches going on. So there's a whole bunch of things going on this week and next week. So be sure and check all those events out. Also, let's see what else we got going on. Okay, I just wanted to make bring you up to speed, too, a little bit. Our friends over at Smoke and Rig Shack Barbecue, well, they've opened up their new additional location at uh, on Fort Harrison Avenue. That's 1359 South Fort Harrison Avenue. So now you got two places to check out the Rib Shack Barbecue. Okay, you got the West Bay Drive store, and you've got the new store over on Fort Harrison. And the new number is 442-1977. So hey, hi, say hi to my buddies Jito, uh, Jed, Kirk and uh, Corey down there, all right? And check out their great barbecue. You can't help but smell it when you go down Fort Harrison or down West Bay Drive. All right. And then also last weekend, let's see, what did I do? I just want to let you guys know that I went to Tallahassee to watch the uh, Florida State Seminoles take care of business, although I didn't go to the football game. My family did, because I'm a car guy. So I went to the Tallahassee Automobile Museum. And, of course, if you recall, last week we had DeVoe Moron, and uh, I had an opportunity to tour his facility. And anybody that wants to see a really, really, really great historic museum with full of just all kinds of stuff. We're not talking just cars, boats, and motorcycles. We're talking outboard engines. We're talking vintage lawnmowers, calculators, knives, toys, uh, airplanes, uh, golf equipment, uh, You know, golf hit memorabilia, baseball memorabilia, football memorabilia, of course, a lot of Florida State stuff because he's a big Florida State supporter, uh, choo-choo train stuff, and just just a neat museum, and it would really, truly take you about a whole day to see this. So be sure to check out the Tallahassee Automobile Museum, uh, and say hi to my friend up there, Devoe Moore. And uh, what do we got up here next? Do we got our caller calling in?
2: Yes, we do. He is uh, waiting to be
0: introduced. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. Without further ado, it is time to introduce a very, very fascinating individual. Now, I, this guy has been racing since, the, since 1959 unofficially, 1960 officially. Okay, he's world-renowned. He's raced everything from Little Morris Miners to... Uh, One of my favorite cars, a Ford GT40. Uh, He's raced Porsches. He's raced BMWs. He's raced open-wheel Formula 5000s. I think he did a couple of brief stints in some F1 cars. Um, Just pretty much a GT racer, IMSA GT racer. Um, And without further ado, I'd like to welcome Brian Redman to our show. Brian, are you there?
1: I am indeed. Thank you, Robert.
0: Wow, sounds like you're... uh, not too far away, but not not real close either. And so uh, you're over where, and you're on the other side of Florida, aren't you?
1: Yeah, we live in the Vero Beach on the on the east coast, really.
0: <laughs> okay, uh, are we breaking up there. We got a communication. Are we not Can you hear me? Okay, there,
1: Brian. Yes, I'm yeah.
0: Okay, yeah, we, there was a little stutter there for a second, and uh, so you're calling on the computer, correct?
1: I am. I'm calling on Skype on I'm... the computer.
0: Okay, excellent, super. Okay, well, anyway, so I gave a little brief introduction. Um, but a lot of our fans uh, may or may not be familiar with you, but just to go through the, uh, your excellent uh, uh, racing background, let's start from the very beginning. So you started, uh, you told me yesterday on the phone when we talked a little bit, um, you started in 1959. What was your first little uh, escapade with an automobile? What got you into the sport?
1: I was a mop head manufacturer in Burnley in Lancashire in the industrial north of England. Uh, mop heads being the thing that you clean floors with. They're pretty well the same today as they were then. Mm-hmm. And I delivered them all over England in a Morris 1000 uh, Woody. It was actually called a traveler's car. That was the correct name for it. And I fitted a super truck up the front and rear for the suspension and an anti-tramp bracket to stop the rear axle leaping around and... Uh, drove it like a maniac on the roads, uh, delivering mop heads. And I decided I'd better get off the road and onto the track, and that's how it started. Uh
0: Uh-huh. So then you started out... Did you take that actual very car and go club racing with it?
1: Yes, because at that time... in that category of racing, in fact, in nearly every category of racing, apart from the open-wheel, single-seat Formula One cars, which couldn't be taken on the road, nearly all cars that raced were also driven on the road. I mean, the Jaguars in the, in the mid-50s, the D-types and the C-types were driven from Coventry in England to Le Mans, 24 hours. Then they were raced for 24 hours and driven back to England.
0: Now, it's true that now these cars, because we're talking about sports cars and GT cars, so it's fair to say, then, that these cars were originally production cars that were used in endurance racing, and the operative word there is they were there designed to go as long as they could, as fast as they could, and complete the race, so hence it was an endurance race. And that was the whole idea of taking a production car and basically tweaking it just a little bit and then see what the ultimate outcome would be on each car. Was that would that be a fair statement?
1: Um yes, but it all started, you know, after the World War 2 when there's no money around and uh, there were very few racing cars and so people started racing their production cars like the XK120 Jaguar that came out in 1949. What, Forty-eight, maybe, and Ferraris of various kinds, and one or two Maseratis or Allards, But these were all basically road cars designed for street use, and then they were just raced as a as a hobby that turned then into a into a profession later on.
0: Uh huh. Okay. So then, following the uh, the uh, little Morris Minor, what did you get into after that? What kind of vehicle?
1: Well, it's something even smaller. Uh, it was the new Mini Minor. Okay. which is the predecessor of the... But We have Mini Coopers on the road, because they're not the same in those days. They were built, first of all, in 1959, and it had a tiny little engine, 48 cc's, And it went pretty well, and we highly modified it, but again, used it for work every day and for racing at the weekend.
0: Uh-huh. And then, uh, and then after that, what kind of car did you have?
1: Uh, the following year, an XK120 Jaguar, because, uh, you know, I was tired of these little tiny engines blowing up all the time uh-huh. and having to work on it to keep it going. The XK120 with its big engine uh, was very reliable. And the trouble was it wore the tires out like crazy, and I only raced it twice. In and those and two races, I completely wore out a new set of tires each time, and I couldn't afford to keep replacing them.
0: So... Uh... Now, the tires that you raced back in those days, were they basically like a racing slick, or was that a, a street tire, or what was what type of a tire was it exactly?
1: Um, you could have, in fact, I did. I raced on a racing tire made at that time by Dunlop, the, the English company, mm-hmm. and they would have had treads on, weren't slicks. There were no slicks until the late 60s.
0: Okay, so now you're, you're racing your 120 Jag, and you ate up a couple sets of tires, and it didn't make a lot of economic sense to keep that car anymore. And then you decide to move on, and your next car was
1: a Morgan Plus Four.
0: A Morgan Plus Four—that's a really another very great car. I mean, that car has great heritage, doesn't it? Morgans.
1: Yes, and in fact, today Morgan are the only British car company still owned by a British company uh, making cars out of all those great English cars that were made for so many years. The only one that's British-owned is Morgan.
0: And where are they made? Where in England are they? Where's their factory?
1: They're made in a place called Malvern, M A L V E R N. It's in uh, Worcestershire, in about the middle of England.
0: Okay. And now they've reintroduced that car, but they've somewhat managed to retain the original appearance of that car, correct?
1: Yes, they have. They've had one or two cars that have been very aerodynamic and streamlined, but the old fashioned car that they still make still, still sells very well.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so then you race this Morgan uh, Plus Four, and. Uh, uh, tell us a little bit about that car.
1: Um, it had a Triumph TR2 engine. You know, Triumph also made sports cars, and that engine actually came from a car called the Standard Vanguard, which was a sedan built in the early 1950s. Mm-hmm. And it was also used in the in the Ferguson tractor. <laughs> oh, really? So. But at the end of 1962, I got married to my wife, Marion, and I, I could no longer afford racing, and I went motocross on motorbikes, you know, cross-country racing. Well, now, motorbikes so, okay. uh, for two and a half, the next two and a half years.
0: So in other words, you didn't do any car racing, but you raced motorcycles, and that was just, again, what, a question of economics then?
1: It was, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, there was no money.
0: And what type of uh, motorcycles did you race?
1: Well, it sounds crazy, but the first one was a D-O-T, a dot, and they were made in nearby Manchester, the city of Manchester, and D-O-T stood for Devoid of Trouble.
0: (laughs) Devoid of Trouble? On a motorcycle?
1: Yep, yep,
0: yep. (laughs) Motorcycles are all about trouble. (laughs) But uh, anyway, now when you say motocross, are you talking, let's say, basically like a street bike, or are you talking about a, a true MX dirt bike?
1: Yes, yeah, a dirt bike, but of course they're nothing like the modern dirt bikes because the suspension travel was only two or three inches, and today's bikes travel—I don't know what they travel. Oh, they're about 10, ten to, and 10 to
0: twelve today. inches. Yeah, they're a foot or more. Right, exactly. And they're all monocoque suspension, all kinds of cool stuff, or mono uh, shock suspension. Yes. And, yes, uh, yes,
2: yes. Okay. So then you uh, did that during, for how many years? During
1: that uh, two years, I, I did um, take part in the occasional race, racing for a company who specialized in tuning Mini Cooper 1275 S's. Well.
2: Uh-huh.
0: So you did that for a couple of years, and then till when? Until about
1: 1965? Uh, in 1965, I, I, uh, using a Friends XK120, I got the fastest time of day in a time trial, a sprint, where one car, at a time goes, It's not a race. And he had a friend called Charles Bridges who just bought a famous X-Factory Jaguar lightweight E-Type. And he said, I'll get you a drive. And uh, this sprint in Southport in the north of England was on Easter Monday. And Tuesday morning the phone rang and he said, can you be at Alton Park? That was the local racetrack at 8 o'clock on Thursday morning. And I got there and there sat this beautiful E-Type Jaguar. It's all... Very, very special, all aluminum, you know, the whole body, the engine block even was aluminum, and just a a very special car, and uh, I knew it was a great opportunity, and I I put a big effort in, and fortunately didn't crash, and managed to go, you know, about three or four seconds faster than the owner of the car, Charles Bridges, and he said to me, what are you doing on Saturday? You know, that was two days away, and I said, well, nothing. He said, come and race the E-Type here. And so we continued into a fantastic season where we raced 12 times and we were first 11 times and second once. We were beaten at the end of the year by a 250LM Ferrari, which was really a a superior car. But so we had a great, great uh, season.
0: What made the the Works Jaguar, because that was the Works cars, is the term they use for factory race cars in Europe, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so a works car, and this being an XKE light, and I know the Germans, they had L's uh, attached to the the L suffix attached to their cars, too, and L usually stood for Leicht, which is German for light. So what made the XKE light? Did it have more aluminum? Did it have fiberglass on it? Or what was so unusual about that car? No,
1: there was Fiberglass, but it was all all aluminum because the basic production car that Jaguar made was all steel. Mm-hmm. So now the whole of the body is aluminum instead of steel. Wow! And the engine block is is aluminum instead of iron.
2: Oh!
0: Uh,
1: it, it was fuel injected. You know, it was a, it was a great car.
0: So it was what five six hundred pounds lighter than a production XKE?
1: Yes, I don't know the exact number, but it, it would have been five, a good five hundred pounds lighter than the production car.
0: Well, I know in drag racing, I'm not sure about road racing, but in Jacksonville, every 100 pounds is a tenth of a second. So if you're drag racing, and <laughs> yes. so I would presume that, uh, you know, if that car was 500 pounds lighter, it was substantially quicker, particularly in the turns, which is where it would be uh, most beneficial.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: And, uh, okay, so then uh, after that, then we come to 1966, and we're going chronologically here. So this, I'm giving everybody your whole history. So you don't mind talking about this, do you, Brian? This is kind of interesting.
1: So, like, I don't think we we'll have enough time.
0: <laughs> well, we'll 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 uh, we'll take some shortcuts, but we'll go through some of this stuff. <laughs> I want to get to the heart of it, the meat. You know what really, you know, the essence of your racing career. And in my opinion, the '60s were the best years. The '60s and early '70s had the most innovative cars. I think because that's when the cars were cars, and there was a lot of technology that people take for granted today that was innov- that was incorporated in a lot of the race cars. So, would that be a fair statement to say?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Yes, it was a time of people didn't really the manufacturers didn't really understand aerodynamics or anything, and of course, you know, the reliability wasn't so great. And it was a time of uh, different manufacturers made very different cars. Today, the racing cars all look the same. You know, whether it's a NASCAR car or an LMS car or a Grand Land car, they all look identical. Right. Uh, I think that takes a lot away from you know a lot away from the sport.
0: Well, yeah, because that would be, it would be fair to say that because just like you said. The cars were so different because they were because a lot of the technology and aerodynamics was new so everybody tried a different hand so consequently you had a big variety of different looking cars where today just like you said you know like if you look at the a lot of the prototype cars today they all look alike you know, the only thing that changes is the drivetrain but they've all run the same electronics they all run the same computers they all run the same electro, uh, you know suspension technology where back then there was such a, a great variation because they were all trying to experiment with new ideas so they could win correct yes
1: absolutely
0: okay yeah. so of the car so then in 1966 when did you get your first big ride what was your you know when you got what was the big break for you in, in motorsports racing
1: Well, the really big breakthrough was at the end of the following year, at the end of 66, because, uh, first of all, at the end of 65, Charles Bridges, who owned the lightweight E-Type, said, what would you like to drive next year? And the real answer should have been Formula 3. That's an open-wheel single-seater. And that was the, the noted pathway to Formula 1, you know, to to the Stars, but I'd just seen a Can-Am race, and I'd seen a friend of mine, David Hobbs, you know, who's a... Car oh, yeah, I know David Hobbs. Mm-hmm. Speed on the Formula One. I'd just seen him win a race at Croft in the north of England, driving a Lola 270 Can-Am car, and I said, boy, that's fantastic, you know, and if I had a choice, that's what i get, and Charles Bridges bought one.
0: No kidding. Just for you, so, so you could go choice. race.
1: Yeah. So we had a we had another great, great year. But of course, in, in club racing, as opposed to international racing, the car was superior to everything else. But in international racing, which I now started doing for the first time, I was racing against, you know, Jimmy Clark and Graham Hill and John Surtees and Denny Hume and all the stars. And uh, it was an interesting experience. Okay, then
0: this was in 1966, and this is when uh, Charles yes. Bridges acquired the, the Lola 270.
1: Yes. Okay. Yes, that's great.
0: And the and a T7, um, a Lola T70, for our, for our listeners, is basically a European design or English design. Uh, at that time, it was a prototype car. So it's a prototype GT car. And it was powered by what? You had a Chevrolet in that car, didn't you?
1: In our case, it was a Chevrolet. I mean, there were some cars with Fords, but Chevrolet was generally the, the engine of choice.
0: Mm hmm. Okay. And uh, so you ran a whole season with that particular car then, right?
1: We did, yes. No. Yes. And then. Uh, at the end of that season we got a a sort of a uh, big change because Charles Bridgers retired from racing and he had two brothers younger brothers, David and John and David who had his own racing team had had a driver his driver had died after an accident at the Nürburgring in Germany in a Formula 2 car, that's an open wheel single seater Mm
2: -hmm. and he
1: was looking for a driver and so in about March of 1967 David said to me, do you want to turn professional? You know, and I said, what does that mean? He said, it means I'll pay you 30 quid a week, 30 pounds a week, which at that time was about $70 a week, guaranteed for a year, and I'll provide a car and a mechanic, and that's how I turned professional.
0: Oh, wow. So you dro- So then you drove an F2 then, was it Formula 2000?
1: Yes it wasn't 2000 at uh, that time, and there is a 2000, and you know, it has been for some years, but it was simply Formula 2. Formula I 2, think.
0: okay. And so,
1: then wh- I what? I mean, the, the, the three main single-seater formulas were Formula 1, which was the World Championship cars. Right. Formula 2, which was the training ground, as it were, but had their own races, and Formula 3, and they were all different power. The Formula 3 cars were like, tiny engines of about 1,000 cc. Little screamers. They go to 10,000 rpm. Even in those days, Formula Two was 1600. cc. Again, going to 10,000 rpm and giving about 240 horsepower.
0: Okay. And so, the uh, what was the what was the body and chassis of the Formula Two car that you raced back then?
1: The one that I raced, uh, well, first of all, uh, we had a disaster because when I told my father, uh, he, he said to me, you're spending a lot of time racing and you've got to decide do you want to be a grocer or a racing driver? And I talked to my wife, Marion, about it, and she said, you decide. And I said to father, I'm going to be a racing driver. And he said, well, good luck, but if you change your mind, you can't come back. You know." So the die was set. And the week after giving him the decision to go racing, I got a call from David Bridges who said we can't get the new Brabham car that we want or the two new engines. He said They're not, there aren't any. Oh. they in short supply. So we struggled with an older car for half the year season.
0: And what kind of car was that?
1: It was a Brabham, but it was an older one. And I the see. engine was a made up one that had been 1,000cc, and we made it into 1,600cc. But it wasn't very good. But halfway through the year, about July, John Surtees, the famous double, you know, world champion on boat bikes, mm-hmm. came to us and he said, I'll sell you a new Lola, 4 you 2 car with two new Cosworth engines. And that's what happened. So now we had a new car and two new engines. And again, you know, this was international racing. We we're racing at the. Against the games for Jim Clarks, uh, the Graham Hills, the Bruce McParrons, et cetera, et cetera. Lock and Rint. So.
0: Wow. Amazing. Okay, so that was 1967. So then, now you're racing open wheel cars. When did when did you, uh, in 68, what exactly did you do?
1: Well, at the end of 67, I did a race at Montlhery. That's near Paris. Mm-hmm. And it was 1,000 kilometers. That's just over 620 miles. And I was driving a privately entered car owned by David Piper, Ferrari 250 LM, Mm -hmm. and it poured with rain. And we went, uh, I guess we went okay, because the team manager for the famous John Wire Golf operation, David York, came to me and he said, how would you like to drive with Jackie X? He was the Belgian wonder boy, 21 years old and reckoned to be a future Formula One world champion. Uh, at Kyle Army in South Africa in the nine-hour race in November. And so uh, we had a great race, and we won. And so at that point in November of 1967, I suddenly got an offer for Formula One for Cooper, and John Wyer wanted me to sign a contract to race the GT40 Ford, sponsored by Gulf Oil, driving with Jackie Ickx in 1968. And so I had two great drives at this point, and our daughter Charlotte, was born whilst I was at Daytona in February of uh, 68, and everything looked fantastic. We bought a new house on the strength of all this, and Jackie Hicks and I won the six-hour race at Brands Hatch in the GT40. Then we won the Spa... Thousand-kilometer race in the same car, and I would finish third in the Spanish Grand Prix in the Cooper. So we then went to the Belgian Grand Prix, back at Spa-Francorchamps in June of nineteen sixty-eight. And on Sunday morning, Colin Chapman asked me if I'd like to drive, you know, for Lotus in Formula One. That was the top. That was the top drive. Mm-hmm. And so again, everything was looking fantastic at this point. And about two hours later, the race started. The suspension broke on my Cooper, and I had an enormous accident. I went over the barrier, rolled over it, and my right arm got caught between the barrier and the car. And uh, I had a very bad compound fracture of the right forearm with all the bones sticking out, and it caught fire. It lost three wheels during the accident, and it caught fire as well. I landed right in the marshal's uh, point, you know, the corner worker's point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, one of the corner workers was badly injured by one of my wheels that had hit him. And he uh, had a heart attack, and it was a, a scene from hell.
0: Really? So he? Oh wow! So uh, that was, uh, and that was in 1968. And wh- what racetrack was that again?
1: The yes, Spa francorchamps in Belgium.
0: Oh okay, Spa racetrack. Oh wow! And that's a very famous track. Now that's the track you were telling me. That's about an eight mile, tra- eight mile yes. course, and uh, a lot of topography in that one. A lot of ups and downs and turns and stuff. Correct
1: quite a bit of up and down and uh, not a huge number of turns but the the, the unique thing about Spa-Francorchamps was the speed. It was just immensely fast.
0: So how fast uh, were you going when your crash took place?
1: Uh, well, the corner that I crashed on which is called Les Coups, uh was actually about the third slowest corner on the track but it was taken at 120 miles an hour. Oh my. And to all the other turns except for one, the hairpin, Last Source was taken in first gear. And apart from Last Source and Le Couls, all the rest of the track is taken in top gear at very high speed all the time.
0: Wow. So what is that That track? What, what's the average speed on that track if you're running a full-blown race and you have no mishaps?
1: Um, well, in 1970, my co-driver, Joseph, and I driving the factory Porsche 917 set the fastest road race ever run up to that date when we averaged... 149 miles an hour for 600 miles, including the pit stops. And the fastest single lap in the race was set by Pedro Rodriguez, also in one of our Gulf 917s, at an average of 163.
0: Wow, that's 23 miles an hour faster. In the same yeah. race course?
1: Um, well, it's 13 miles. We averaged oh, 149, oh, one that, four- that included the pit stops.
0: Okay, okay, so, 149. Yeah. All right, and then uh, so all right. So then, after the following the crash, what did you do? You had to take off for a while, didn't you?
1: Yep, I was at home in a new house <laughs> in the north of England, not earning any money. And in October of '68, the local doctor in the hospital took one X-ray of my arm, and they said it's okay. And so I went to South Africa again to do a series of races, starting with a nine-hour race at Kyle Army that I'd won the year before. And then I did three hours at Cape Town, three hours in the Bulawayo, three hours in Lorenzo Marks, and my forearm was hurting a bit. And as we went past Johannesburg en route to another track, I called Alex out the event organizer, and I said, do you know a good bone man, you know, in Johannesburg? <laughs> and he, he said, I know the Christian Barnard of the bone world. Well, Christian Barnard was the heart transplant. That's right. Mm-hmm. And I went to see uh, the bone man, David Wu, on a Friday evening, and he took 20 x rays, not not one. And he sat me down and he said, Brian, man, I've got two bits of bad news for you. And I said, What? He said, You don't have any union of either bone. So, Ooh. What's the other bit? He said, I'm going on vacation tomorrow.
0: <laughs> so,
1: so, anyway, I said, I have to be at Daytona in six weeks' time. And uh, I just signed a contract with Porsche to do the 1969 World Championship races with them. And he said, I'll experiment. and It may work and it may not. And he opened the arm up again, right from my wrist to my elbow, and uh, cleaned off the broken ends that weren't healing, took bone out of my hip and glued it in position in my forearm, sewed it all up again, and said, don't use it till you have to. He didn't put it in plaster. He put it in a sling. I arrived at Daytona at the end of January, took the sling off, never said anything to anybody, and there were five factory Porsches in the race, the 24-hour race, and, uh, you know, one of them was going to win, and I didn't really see how I could drive for 24 hours, and I was driving with one hand and supporting the wheel at about 200 miles an hour on the banking with my knee, so I've got my right hand, which was the injured hand, resting on the wheel, just in case something went wrong, you know, and I had to use it. And about 8 in the evening, the first of the five Porsches came in the pits with the engine going chit 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 And the engineers examined it, and they said, We are finished. It was over all break. <laughs> we were out by 11.
0: <laughs> so, but your car, that wasn't your car, was it?
1: Yeah, I mean, they all went out, all of them.
0: All the Porsches went out?
1: And all the portions, all five factory cars broke down.
0: Oh my, my, my! Oh, they. Oh, dude, that's the shame. Hey, let me ask you a quick question. Let's back up a second. When you did you you race a GT40 with Jackie X at uh, Le Mans, right?
1: No, because both the, in the year '68, when Jackie X and I were driving together, when Le Mans came around in June, we were both injured. I'd been I was out oh. with my broken arm, and X was out with a broken leg.
0: Did you ever? Go ahead. All right. Did you ever race Le Mans where they did the old uh, Le Mans start, where, they, where they, all the drivers ran from one side of the track to the other side of the track and jumped in the cars and took off? Did you ever have an opportunity yes. to do that?
1: Yes. Yes, they stopped somewhere about 1970. But I raced at Le Mans the first time in 1967, and it was a running start for, for that race.
0: And that you were driving to what? A Lola then, I presume, right? Uh, a GT40 Ford. Oh, Was it GT40? Okay, so what was that like? What was it like to sit there and did you was it was it a big deal to race across the track as fast as you could and then get in your car and get it started or did you just yeah. kind of like lumber? How did that? How, to ex- explain that to me. I often wondered. I never have an, had an opportunity to talk to somebody that actually did that. I'd like to know. I've always been curious.
1: Well, you know, it was very dangerous. And my my great co-driver Jackie, Hicks, who was so young, he was nine years younger than I was. And although I didn't do that Le Mans with him before, at Kailama, the nine-hour race in November 67 when we raced together for the first time, that was a Le Mans start. And he walked across the road, calmly got in the car, did the seat belts up, off he went. <laughs> he disagreed so much with the concept, you know, of running and jumping in the car, not fastening the belts and going flying off.
0: Really? Okay. So, in other words, I mean, did you ever have? Did, was there ever a time when some of the drivers didn't get over to their cars in time, and people took off and almost ran over the driver? I mean, was that ever? Because you really can't tell in the movies. I mean, there's no reals Or in the some of the. Yeah, there,
1: was, there was a lot of confusion because the cars were lined up on a, in echelon, and you know, if a car didn't start or something, it didn't really matter. But it was very confusing, and it was dangerous.
0: Hmm. Okay. So, uh, all right. So then, in, so 1970, you're racing the 917s at Daytona with a half broken arm, and uh, all the cars break down. So then, uh, tell us a little bit about the 917. I asked you once off that uh, you know what was the scariest, hairiest car you ever drove, and you said it was a 917 Longtail in 1969. So tell us a little bit about that
1: car. Uh- happened was, you know, going into the politics a little bit, when the Americans won Le Mans in 1966 and 67 with the big block Fords, Mm -hmm. the FIA, the governing body of motorsport, which they still are today, based in Paris, France, um, said, okay, uh, no more unlimited capacity engines. From now on, the limit for a prototype, that means if you make just one or two or three or four cars, is 3 litres, 3,000 cc. If, however, you're a manufacturer who is already building street cars with bigger engines up to 5 litres, if you build 25 of these cars, you can have 5 liter. Well, nothing happened. Nobody built 5-litre cars. They're all 3-litre cars. So in the, towards the end of 1968, the FIA changed the rules again. They said, OK, let's make it 25 of 5-litre cars. And at that point, Porsche... Unknown to anybody and, and absolutely unforecast by the FIA built 25, actually four and a half litre cars that they called the 917. And this was absolutely unprecedented and the FIA never thought that would happen, but it did. And the car, because Porsche were racing five uh, cars in all the races, which meant they had about 15 of them at the factory. Uh, there was no time available to spend on the 917, and so in the first year, 1969, it was terrible. And Le Mans, for the 24 Hours, Joseph and I had a choice, and we drove the 917 in practice and a special long-tail, open 908 Spider. And uh, we, we, we both agreed that the Spider would be better. It was more reliable, it was easier to drive, etc., etc., And uh, we were leaving the race when the gearbox overheated because it had never been tested with that long tail. Now, Vic Alford, he liked the 917 because it was 20 miles an hour faster than any other car on the straight. So you could be careful around the corners and then power it down the straight. The straight, of course, was four miles long. Today, there were two chicanes on the straight, but in those days, there was no chicane. It was four miles flat out. And in fact, Vic uh, and Richard Atwood, the English driver, were leading at about the 20-hour point. They had a good lead, and the gearbox failed if um, it got an oil leak onto the clutch. So the rest of 69, the, the 970 was hardly raced. But at the end of 69, Porsche was spending far too much money on racing, and they made an agreement with their old enemy, John Wire. Huh. John Wire and the Gulf Oil Company would run the official Porsche factory team in the 917s in 1970. So that's what happened there.
0: Okay, so tell us about what uh, John Wire and his team did to straighten out Porsche's oversight on why the uh, 917 was a little hairy and scary at uh, 240 miles an hour on the Molson Strait at, uh, at Le Mans.
1: Well, the the, the whole uh, focus behind Porsche this time was 30 men PX who was Dr. Porsche's nephew mm-hmm. and who today, today in 2010, is probably the most powerful motor industry man in the world. He's He controls Volkswagen, which controls Bentley, Bugatti, Audi, et cetera, et cetera. And he was so determined and far-sighted, and his whole thing was lightweight and straight line speed and so i think the engineers knew that the problem of the 917 was aerodynamic you know at the back and uh, happy it wouldn't let them do anything so when john wire um just before he actually took over there was a test at the ostreichering in austria and i went on behalf of john wire and uh, uh, Kurt Ahrens went on behalf of Porsche. Now, this was a Porsche-run test attended by John Wire and his staff. And the chief engineer, John Horseman, he was there... And uh, on the on the Thursday, we kept going round and round, and R and would go round, and I would go round, and the engineers would say, "We drop the front a little bit, we put up the tire pressures, we do this, we do that." Nothing made any difference. When we did two laps at a time, you go out one lap and come in the next lap, no different, no different. But on Friday afternoon, John uh, Horseman, the engineer, the wire engineer, said, "Look at this," he said, "There's bugs all over the front of the car." And he said, and there aren't any more anywhere on it until the very tip of the tail, the top inch, he said, there isn't any air going on the back of the car. So he borrowed uh, aluminum and the pop rivets and the pop rivet gun and some duct tape from Porsche. And he leveled out the rear deck. He made it level. And the guys worked on it in well into the night on Friday night. And I was the first out on Saturday morning. And I went out. And I didn't come in, whereas I'd been coming in every lap, you know, the day the whole of the day before I'd been just doing one lap, two laps, three laps and no difference, no difference. And this time I stayed out for seven laps and I came in and I said, Now we have a race car. It was four seconds a lap faster.
0: Wow. And that's all due to just a slight change in aerodynamics on the back yes. tail of the car. Yes. Now this yes. was a nine seventeen long tail, correct?
1: Well, the original car was kind of a long tail, and it's in its original that It made 25 of them. Mm-hmm. But after that, in 1970, first of all, when John Wire and the team came to Daytona in February of 1970 with the 917s, they had a shock. Because there was Ferdinand Pieck with a team of 917s from Porsche, Austria. Porsche, Austria was owned by his mother, Louise Pieck. And, uh, and John Wyatt didn't know anything about it, and they did have a long-tail car, and at Le Mans they had a special long-tail car, and John was offered the long-tail, but he said, no, you know, we'll stick with the short tail, we know more about it, etc. etc. et, cetera, et cetera. So we So ne- we never used the long-tail in the Wyatt team. Hmm.
0: Okay. So then in 1970, one, 70 you raced the 917, and then what happened in 71?
1: At the end of 1970, I retired uh, because I thought I was going to be killed. I mean, there were so many dying in those days that, you know, every time I went to a race, I've got two little children, and I kissed my wife and the children goodbye, and I know very well it could be the last time, and it was just getting getting on top of me, you know. And I'd been offered a job running a BMW dealership in Johannesburg, South Africa, and uh, in September, I said to my wife, we're going. In November, we're going. You know,
0: <laughs> wow. Okay, and then uh, and then what did you do? Then in nineteen seventy-two, you got back into racing a little bit.
1: Uh, well, still in seventy-one, in March of seventy-one, uh, at home at about uh, two in the morning, we were raided by the police. I won't go into all the details. It was concerning apartheid, and uh, I went and uh, anyway, uh, you know, I said to Marion one day, "There's going to be a bad scene here. We're going back." So in March of nineteen seventy-one, we went back to England turned all the household furniture and the car around with all the shit. And uh, I didn't have a drive. And I took a one-off drive for Sid Taylor in a Formula 5000 car. And then I did a one-off for John Wire in the Targa Florio. The Targa Florio was 44 miles to one circuit. And there were 10 laps in the race. And it was 950 corners per lap. And I'd run it the year before in 1970 with my co-driver, Joe Sifford in a Porsche 9083, and John Wyre's new driver, Derek Bell, had never been there, and Wire said, Redmond, you've done it four times, et cetera, et cetera, and I thought it was a great opportunity, and on the first lap, about 20 miles into the race, the steering broke, and I hit a concrete post in the fuel tank, and the whole thing exploded on fire. I was very, very lucky to get out, and I was blinded and burnt pretty well all over And there was no help. For 45 minutes, I was was out on the hillside, unable to see uh, by myself. So that was another unfortunate incident. But at the end of the year, in September, BRM, British Racing Motors, who were primarily Formula One builders, had built a Canon car for the Canadian store millionaire George Eaton of Eaton's stores in Canada. And we took that car to uh, Imola in Italy and it poured with rain. The car was very good in the rain. And I lapped the entire field, uh, including a factory Ferrari. And the factory engineer, Mauro Fuggeri came up to me after the race. He said, Brian, what are you doing next year, 1972? I said, nothing. He said, you drive for Ferrari. Wow. <laughs> so I was saved by the bell.
0: Hey Brian, we got. Uh, I can. Uh, you're right. This is not going to be a one show deal. Um, would you be willing to come back and do part two of Brian Redman for me? Would you be willing to do that sometime? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yes. Um, real quickly though, we got a few minutes. I want to talk uh, about the uh, vintage race at Sebring this weekend. Legends of Motorsports with Bobby Ray Hall. Now you're going to be the honorary, uh, I guess, Grand Marshal, correct?
1: That's correct. Yes, I'm the Grand Marshal, which means that I go around smiling and shaking hands.
0: Shaking hands, but you're going to be driving a car too, though, right?
1: I'm supposed to drive Bobby's own uh, Chevron V16, which is a car that I... First drove in 1969. Not this particular car, but the model. Uh Uh, They introduced it in the the ring in Germany, and it won its first race. It's a
0: great car. Wow. Okay. Are you going to be driving any other cars? Uh, Are you going to? uh, No. No. no? That's enough. That's enough. enough. Okay. Well, that's good. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. I want to thank Brian Redman, uh, our special guest for this evening, for coming on the show. This is Nostalgic Radio and Cars. In case you just tuned in, Uh, you can catch the podcast later. Um, and tune into all our all great shows. And uh, Brian, I want to thank you again for coming on the show, and I look forward to seeing you and meeting you. And uh, who knows, maybe I get a ride in one of the race cars down at the racetrack this weekend. What do you think? I you hope know? so, Robert. I hope so. Even, even my even though my racing license has expired for a few years, uh, I mean I still know how to drive a car. So you know, as long as I know how to start that, darling, and uh, get uh, get it going, I should be able to get around the track a couple times, even if it's just to drive for normal, but uh, or drive for fun. But anyway, again, I want to thank you, and I look forward to seeing you this weekend. And uh, uh, keep it safe, okay? Okay,
1: thank you all. See you soon.
0: Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Alright, uh, how are we doing on time, Lee? Got a couple minutes. We got a couple minutes? Okay, well, uh, you know what? Just for, uh, for Brian, why don't we play a, a little bit of a Bee Gees song that you picked out, because he likes the Bee Gees. Although, Brian really likes classical music, and uh, we just uh, didn't, uh, we couldn't find anything we really liked. So, uh, But he said as an alternative, he'd go with uh, a little bit of Bee Gees music, right? So uh, let's see what we got. Some classic vintage 60s Bee Gees. This is uh, Please Read Me from their first album. It's called Bee Gees First. Oh, really? Okay, Brian, this is for you. I hope you stay tuned. And uh, if you catch the podcast, this song's for you, buddy. Thanks. All right, everybody, you are tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. I want to thank everybody for tuning in, and be sure to check us out next weekend on the WTAN AM 1340 Talk Radio Network here in Clearwater. So uh, next week, 7 p.m. to 8, and uh, everybody have a good weekend and hope you'll have to see you at some of the events, the races, the PRI show, the car shows, and so on. Meanwhile, happy motoring. Hey listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radiant Cars. I'd like to tell you about a great place to eat right on the main part of Clearwater Beach. Located at 333 South Gulfview Boulevard. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill has two floors of food, drink, and fun. They have daily specials, happy hour, and nightly entertainment. Their menu caters to seafood lovers as well as land lovers. Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill, 727-608-2065. They're open in the morning for breakfast until 1 a.m. So stop by and visit my friends Turtle, Eddie, and Polly, and all the girls and staff at Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill. That's 727-608-2065. Mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you never know, you might get a free drink. That's Crabby's Beachwalk Bar and Grill on Clearwater Beach, 727-608-2065. Hey, listeners, this is Robert from Nostalgic Radio and Cars. As most of you know, I'm in the car business, and often I need cars towed. Well, Kotaka's Towing has all the trucks and equipment to meet your needs. Whether it's long distance, short distance, or just around the corner, they can get it done. Kotaka's Towing, located at 1141 Court Street in Clearwater. Also, they have a full-service repair and body shop to meet all your automotive needs. So give my friends Lefty and Joey a call at Kotaka's Towing at 727-447-1952. And be sure to mention Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and you might get a discount.